coming up next on this episode of the Unlock You podcast. Just before we started our reporting for this today, I spent an hour this morning with one of my, she's not a junior college, she's quite a veteran of the firm, but she's in a part of the firm that I don't work with that much. And I just, it dawned on me this week that I've missed spending time with her over the past two years. So I said to her, let's take an hour without an agenda, bring a cup of coffee and let's just catch up. That's time consuming. And, and, and a time consultant might look at that and say, well, that's, that's kind of inefficient as well. It's the best investment I've ever made is investing in those relationships with people. It's the only investment on which you're guaranteed a return. Mm -hmm. That relationship capital is really, really critical. One of the silver linings that I'm excited about in managing a more distributed workforce is that I think it's going to enable companies, if they focus on it, to really make progress on whatever kinds of diversity, equity, and inclusion objectives that they have. Hey friends, thanks so much for joining us. This is Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. I'm a clinical psychologist, leadership consultant, and a really big fan of you getting to fulfill your life purpose. I want you to get unstuck and unlock your potential relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and vocationally. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. Hey, everybody. As you know, I love, love, love investment business strategy. And when Scott Clemens and I got on our last call, I just was geeking out. So we were brainstorming, how can we make this really relevant to where we're at right now? I don't know about you guys, but we have our stocks are just going all kinds of crazy. And are we buying buildings? Are we not? Are we staying in business? Are we changing jobs? Are we relocating? There's so many decisions right now. So economist Scott Clemens is our guest and I'm super excited. He is brilliant. I will, I did his bio in our other video, but oh my gosh, check him out. He's constantly uh, quoted by all the news media print and TV outlets. So thank you, Scott, for being our guest again. We are so grateful. You're welcome. Remind me at some point to talk to you about under-promising and over-delivering, but thank you for that uh, introduction nonetheless. Um, I meant I mean, Shannon, as you know, I spend a lot of my time advising uh, families who are investors. And, and, and interestingly, more often than not, a lot of our clients at Brown Brothers Harriman are also families who own private businesses. Mm -hmm. So their, their interest in the economy and financial markets isn't just their stocks and bonds and portfolio. But as right. you said, it's, you know, are they buying buildings? Are they adding a new product line? Are they uh, buying a competitor? I mean, so there's a lot of questions that are, that are uh, always being asked. What makes it particularly challenging now is that there's just so many moving parts in the economy, some of which look normal and traditional, but others of which aren't, that, that added on to the usual uh, uh, uncertainty of economic activity as, as we're here kind of emerging from COVID-19 and the pandemic and the economic implications of that, it's, it's more disruptive than usual. Yeah, yeah. So I listened to you at the Fort Worth Business leaders conference and you had such a message of hope and I was just so encouraged and that's really why I came up to you I think I would have been super intimidated this New York brilliant guy talking about economy but you're just you're witty you're engaging you're relatable and you really know your stuff and to hear you say that there's hope for the economy can you unpack some of that for us yeah 
Yeah, it's 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 more than hope. I mean, I, I think it's just the context of putting all of these moving parts and daily headlines in, in, into the bigger picture. Yeah. And, and, and here, here's the bigger picture that I see unfolding uh, over the course of 2022 and, and really beyond. These aren't really time constrained things. The first of which is we're undergoing a transition in economic leadership. So in 2020 and in 2021, the real engine of economic activity was the government. And I don't say that as a value judgment, but the combination of government spending and what the Federal Reserve was doing in terms of keeping monetary policy very easy and interest rates very low, these were lifelines thrown to an economy that had suffered a setback yeah. of, of, of historical uh, proportions. I mean, there have been pandemics in the past, but there really haven't been any in a modern economic environment. But that's the past. So the federal government is no longer spending money hand over fist. There are no more paycheck protection program, direct stimulus checks. And of course, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. So we're seeing a transition back to a more normal driver of economic activity. And that normal driver of economic activity is you and me and our 335 million fellow Americans. Personal yeah. spending, household consumption is 68% of GDP. As mm -hmm. goes the consumer, so goes the nation. Mm -hmm. So- the, the household financial situation and the labor market are really important. And when I look at an environment in which we are still adding or recovering three or four or 500,000 jobs a month, wages are growing. That's more people with more jobs and more money and more money in their pockets and more ability to spend. So to those analysts and, 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 and talking heads on television, many of whom are my friends, who say <laughs> we're on the verge of a recession, we're in a recession already, with that much money flowing through people's pockets, uh, even with gas prices high and all that, there's just it's hard for me to imagine that we're in a recession currently because there's just so much consumer spending that's taking place. Mm -hmm. the, pro the problem is in the, second, in the second transition, which follows very closely, is there's a lot of inflation in our economy right now. Inflation has run over 8% for the past three or four months. Yeah. There's a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of pessimism. Is this the new normal? Is this? Are we going back to the bad old days, the late 1970s and early 1980s? Mm -hmm. And the answer to all that, I think, is no. Um, you, you, you know um, um, Occam's razor from philosophical history states that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. Mm -hmm. So if you look for the simple explanation to the inflationary environment that we're in now, there's a whole lot of pent up demand. There's a whole lot of excess demand as people are getting back to normal. People are taking vacations for the first time in two years. They're finally getting around to replacing the refrigerator that really should have been replaced two years ago. That's part of that demand that's driving inflation up. Of course, the way pent-up demand works is once it's met, it goes away. So if I finally replace the refrigerator, I'm not going to buy another refrigerator next week. Mm -hmm. I'm done. The lingering inflation is coming from the supply chain disruptions. And this is worrisome to me. What we learned over the past two years is the global economy was so finely tuned that knocking it out of whack just a little bit, and we knocked it out a lot of a yeah. bit, uh, is very disruptive. And, and that's going to take some years to recover. 
I believe that we're transitioning back to a lower level of inflation as pent up demand ebbs and as supply chains heal. That's going to take a longer time than I would have thought, I would say even six months ago. Mm. And part of that's because of the disruption from the war in Ukraine. Part of it's from the fact that the Chinese government is taking a zero tolerance policy to COVID, which prolonged the supply chain disruptions there. So we are not out of the woods yet. Uh, economically, but I think we're emerging from those woods. And that's scary. That's that's why we're seeing the volatility in the markets, because there's uncertainty about how successful that will be or how long it will take. Is it okay to unpack a little bit more what you meant by sure. China's zero tolerance and how that's impacting our economy in yeah. the present? Well, so uh, China, and, and particularly in, in, in Shanghai, in Guangdong province, which is a very important export market, mm-hmm. their zero tolerance policy on COVID is that if they find a single case, they will lock down and quarantine entire communities for periods of weeks. Mm. Now, now, we here in the States have kind of gotten over that, and some of it's been political, some of it's been just fatigue with it. But in a much more command-driven economy, China has the ability to do that. Well, to the degree that various industries in the United States, and a lot of them, are reliant on Chinese exports, when that export is cut off, uh, it, it, it really has a ripple effect on the U.S. economy. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do, because I'm kind of a data geek, and God bless the internet for making it easy to, to um, uh, meet those sort of uh, oh, yeah. insights. <laughs> you can go on the internet and go on marine transportation sites and look at visual representations of where container ships are. Mm-hmm. And a couple of weeks ago in, in, in early May, when the Chinese and the, Shang- and the Shanghai province were very much shut down, if you looked at a map of the port of Shanghai, it looked as if you could almost walk across the entire harbor on the backs of container ships. So many of them were just stranded uh, in that part of the world. So that's a supply chain disruption that six months ago I would not have anticipated. Uh, And if China continues to operate with that model, that could be a source of future disruption as well. That's part of the uncertainty. Do you think that could encourage more domestic supply? I don't know if that's right. I think it already is. Yeah, I think it already is. So, I mean, think about it. And this is actually, I I draw some of these examples from our own uh, client base. My first insight into the idea that COVID-19 might be a big deal came the first week of January of 2020. Mm -hmm. I was reaching out to a client, a light manufacturing industry client in the outskirts of Philadelphia. And I was simply making beginning of the year, happy new year phone calls. How are you? How's the family? Mm -hmm. And this particular client said, well, we've actually started the year on a really rough note. We had to shut down one of our assembly lines Mm -hmm. because we're reliant on a sole supplier of a critical input that happens to be based in Wuhan. And he said, you've probably read something about that. And I said, yeah, I think I read something about that somewhere. They've got a problem over there. Well, little did I know. So I I wonder if we won't look back when all is said and done and and draw one big lesson from the disruption of the past few years, namely that this period of time, let's roughly book in it from 1992, the fall of the Iron Curtain, opening of the Soviet Union, the real growth of China as a global player, 1992 to let's say 2022, will we look back on that 30-year period as a period of unwarranted complacency in the durability of the global economy? Yes. I'm not saying that globalization has come to an end. I'm just saying that companies are increasingly saying, 
maybe I don't want to be existentially reliant on a supplier that's halfway around the world because a lot of unpredictable things can happen as we have learned. So we may be on the on the verge of a i think we are on the verge of a that that pendulum of offshoring and outsourcing swinging back and bringing some of those jobs and bringing maybe even some of those industries all the way back onto american soil so i you know politically that's an interesting and welcome development mm-hmm. but i would say even economically you don't have to be political about it yeah. that's an interesting and welcome development as well so I, I, I hate to book in things because that's always an historian's weakness as to, you know, there's no bell that rings in 92 or in 2022. But I think that's a development that will be interesting to follow as we, as we continue to emerge from this period of economic disruption. That's brilliant, especially since many of the conferences I've been attending, they're talking about the employment, the employment shortage. Yeah. And so now actually increasing jobs being here in domestic, hopefully even the the middle and the higher end jobs, not just the low end jobs. What are your thoughts on that? I think we'll find all of that. And, 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 and you, you've touched upon something that's a common challenge to industries around the country. Every client that I talk to, uh, business that I talk to, big, small, mm-hmm. geographically, wherever they are, whatever industry they're in, the inability to find qualified employees is a real challenge. But this, too, is a supply chain disruption. Labor is an input into the economy, and that Mm. supply chain is disrupted. People are figuring out, maybe I don't want to live and work in a big city. Maybe I want to live and work in a more uh, suburban environment, a rural environment. Maybe I want to live on the West Coast. Maybe I want a completely different industry to work Mm. in. So there's a lot of disruption in the labor supply chain as well, and and that's exerting an economic toll. I I think companies are responding to this in, in two ways competitive companies are responding to this in two ways. One, they're spending some time to figure out what their target employee base really wants. Money is the easy answer to that. But look beyond that, because I think another lesson from the pandemic is people are reassessing what they really value in life. Mm -hmm. Money's on that list because we all need money to buy the things that make us happy and keep us fed and keep a roof over our head. But maybe flexibility is part Mm -hmm. of that. Maybe career development is part of that. Maybe ongoing education is part of that. So companies that find a way to reward their employees, not just monetarily, are competitively advantaged, I think, in finding labor in a tight labor force. The other thing that we have seen is that it has uh, encouraged a lot of companies to accelerate the adoption of technology. Mm-hmm. So I think, for example, of a client of ours who owns uh, a large chain of fast food restaurants in the Midwest. They struggle to find those entry-level employees that take your order, those minimum wage, early career jobs. They're very, very difficult to fill. So what they have done, and you and your viewers have seen this in a lot of places, is they've installed what essentially look like oversized iPads where you go Mm -hmm. up and you place your order and you pay. Someone in the back still prepares your meal, but they have substituted technology for labor. Here's the interesting thing that this particular client has found, and I'm amused by this. It's a, it's a fast food franchise. What they have found is that they're not only saving cost and addressing the labor shortage, their average revenue per order has gone up by 17%. That was not part of their intent. That was a completely serendipitous side effect. Mm-hmm. And when they unpacked it to figure out what was going on, what they decided was 
If I have to look you in the eye and supersize the French fries, I have to withstand your withering judgment as to whether or not I should be eating a supersized fries or not. But if I'm simply pushing icons on a screen, I'm going to supersize everything because no one's exercising judgment on me. So it, but it's a funny example of how that accelerated adoption of technology can have unintended benefits beyond just addressing the labor shortage. It turns out, I think the biggest lesson of the past two years, necessity really is the mother of invention. Yeah. yeah. There's been a lot of necessity over the past two years. We've invented a lot of new ways of working and living and mm -hmm. playing and praying and being human beings. Yeah. And we're not going to forget those lessons as and when life gets back to normal. I think that's a big silver lining in an otherwise really dark cloud yeah. of the disruption to our lives and our businesses over the past couple of years. That's the optimist in me come to the surface. <laughs> I love it. I love that you can still find a silver lining. Thank you for sharing that message of hope. What are your thoughts on just the real estate market in general and the wisdom of a lot of companies are going virtual? Do we still, I mean, some have to have storefront, but as a macro, yeah. what are your thoughts on real estate? Well, I'll start Shannon with the observation that there is no longer any such thing as the real estate market. Okay. It is so fragmented. And, and what I mean by that is you really have to make a distinction between commercial versus residential, city center versus suburban versus exurban versus rural. I mean, almost down to a property by property observation because the demand drivers are so differentiated. So, um, for example, a lot of people have determined that working from home, at least part time, is going to be part of the new normal. Yeah. A lot of those people are deciding that working from my kitchen table cannot be part of the new normal. <laughs> so maybe I need a different house that's got the extra bedroom or the extra home office so that I can be productive. Mm -hmm. That's a bull market. That's a tailwind for residential real estate, probably in suburban areas around uh, dense urban areas of, of true innovation. Yeah. At the same time, I think we're reinventing what an office should be, what an office looks like. The notion of an office is the place where daddy and mommy got up every day and spent an hour in traffic going to so they could sit very close to their colleagues and do the work they could do at home. Our grandkids may laugh at us for that <laughs> antiquated notion, rightfully so. But, but creative companies are reinventing office spaces to be appealing, to draw people in yeah. because we're a herd species. Creativity flourishes mm -hmm. in an environment around the old proverbial yeah. water cooler. So how to renovate that and how to recreate that is really important. What I've seen is the rate limiting factor in real estate. And, and I say this partially because I'm, I'm biased by, by working and living in New York City, the, the densest urban real estate market of all. Yeah. It, it's, it's the public transportation reliance that, that tends to be the real bottleneck. So we're seeing in real estate markets where there's a reliance on public transportation, those dense urban areas, there's probably a bear market in that. Mm -hmm. It's one thing if you can drive to an office, control your own surroundings and get out and walk into the building. But when I have to ride a subway or a bus where I have no control over my surroundings mm -hmm. or who is healthy and who isn't, that, that's, that's probably more of a burden. 
But the 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 um, obituaries that have been written for Los Angeles and Chicago and Miami and New York City real estate, I think, are vastly overstated. Mm -hmm. um, the obituaries for New York in particular have been written many times. After 9-11, this is a city no one was ever going to want to live in again. Mm. wasn't the case. After the global financial crisis, after the pandemic, I mean, again and again and again, these urban areas that draw people together and foster that kind of creativity that drives the economy forward, they're not going away. They're not going away. Yeah. And I like some of the ideas I've heard some of my clients talk about that while they may have their employees work remotely, they still bring them together for mixers and socials and gatherings to still give that community feel, even though we're yeah. re remotely working separate from each other on a day to day basis. So I think yeah. that's another silver lining of the innovation and creativity to create hybrid organization models. What, what, what we see is the companies that were able to pivot most effectively to remote work by necessity in early 2020 did so because there was a lot of, of relationship equity on the table. Because colleagues had worked together for so long, or so you'd worked with your client together for so long, that it was, it was relatively easy to transition to a remote world. But when you uh, dissect why that's the case and you say, well, where does that relationship equity come from? Well, ironically, it comes from being in the office together. Mm -hmm. So it sort of feeds back on itself. It's all yeah. of those hours around the water cooler talking about the weekend, how's the family, what are your plans? That's where the relationship equity comes from. Mm -hmm. In our own practice, which I think of as very much an apprenticeship model, that office environment becomes very important. So to hire young people and bring them up in the culture and the way in which Brown Brothers Harriman works with its clients, that's very important. So we're, we're working on, if you will, kind of flipping the script. Whereas in the old world, you might occasionally have a corporate offsite and you all went away for, for strategy and team building. I think in the new world, you may have the occasional corporate onsite. So you may say to people, work hybrid, we're working remotely, we're getting the job done, but on the second Thursday of every month, we're going to come together for a strategy checkup, a project assessment, a project update. And then you know what? Plan on spending the night because we're going to have a drink and we're going to have dinner and we're going to build that relationship equity before the next day we all go back to wherever it is we came from. I think the real obligation on companies is to invest in the technology to make remote and hybrid work effective and somewhat controversially to invest in the managerial skill set. Because I, I mean, for myself, I've always worked in a very traditional office setting. I don't have any experience, real world, managing a distributed workforce. Mm -hmm. I need that. Yeah. I'm going to have to, as a senior veteran, as a partner of Brown Brothers Harriman, I'm going to have to go back to school and learn yeah. how to be an effective manager of a distributed workforce. Companies are going to need to invest in that if, to get the most out of uh, a workforce going forward. Does that exist? Is that a program already? Well, there are, I mean, the good, the good news is it doesn't mean dropping what you're doing and going back and getting yet another MBA. So yes, there are, there are, um, there are online courses and there are certainly people who've written about this. They're becoming better known. Uh, now you're going to see a lot more articles in the pages of Harvard business review and elsewhere mm -hmm. about how to effectively communicate on a distributed workforce and how to motivate and reward people. My, my concern is I think two or three years down the road, um, that individual who has been in the office, in the line of sight, uh, that's the individual that gets promoted because I see them every day. Whereas that individual who's been remote, 
who may be just as effective, if not more effective, is out of the line of sight, might not get that benefit. That's a very uh, disruptive corporate culture. I want, I, for our, my own firm, I want to be proactive enough to uh, get in front of that before it happens. Yeah, absolutely. So my brain is thinking on two different sides and they're both competing, right? So on one side, we know that familiarity causes people to go, oh, I like you. I respect you. I have a bias that you're a safe and a good person that I'm more likely to promote and to mentor and to kind of bring up in the culture. While on another side, you could say familiarity also breeds contempt. So sometimes having space and not being in each other's personal space all the time can be valuable. What are your thoughts on how people can place themselves in the right position in a corporate model when now they don't have face-to-face in the same way that they did and they can't necessarily highlight beyond just like their little contribution work and they're a little bit more unknown in a large structure? Yeah, it's, it's a balance between those two things. And I I encourage my colleagues and younger colleagues in particular to take the time to invest in relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, just, just before we started our reporting for this today, I spent an hour this morning with one of my, um, she's not a junior colleague. She's quite a veteran of the firm, but she's in a part of the firm that I don't work with that much. And I just, it dawned on me this week that I've missed spending time with her over the past two years. So I said to her, let's take an hour without an agenda bring a cup of coffee and let's just catch up. That's time consuming. And, and, and a time consultant might look at that and say, well, that's, that's kind of inefficient as well. It's the best investment I've ever made is investing in those relationships with people. It's the only investment on which you're guaranteed a return. Mm-hmm. That relationship capital is really, really critical. Yeah. One of the silver linings that I'm excited about in managing a more distributed workforce is that I think it's going to enable companies, if they focus on it, to really make progress on whatever kinds of diversity, equity, and inclusion objectives that they have. I often wonder if I'm hiring in central Manhattan uh, for people to work in my office in Manhattan, am I limiting my candidate pool Mm -hmm. by only looking at people who live and can live and can afford to live in central (laughs) Manhattan? And might I be better off saying, for the right person in the right role and in the right job, if you choose to live in Birmingham, Alabama, that's where family is, or you're in Atlanta, or you're in Topeka, so be it. Maybe my selection set is broadened out by that, and maybe that will enable us to accelerate our uh, diversity initiative. So y- you can tell, Shannon, I'm, I'm sort of an incorrigible optimist <laughs> looking for silver linings and, and everything. And I think that that may be one of them. That's a cultural change for a lot of companies, but it's one that companies that want that competitive advantage will embrace. Absolutely. And you'll get the better candidate to your point. And then your yeah. company is not experiencing the employment shortage because you're willing to meet people where they're at. And like you said, we're willing to educate you, invest in you, quality of life, options that don't just include money as your only incentive to working with us. Right. Exactly. Exactly right. Any last takeaways you'd give our community on right now we're in this economy. What are our next steps? How do we plan going forward? Well, you know, just on this issue of diversity, um, I, we, we often lapse into thinking of uh, diversity and accessibility and equity and inclusion and all those things as corporate obligations, as HR 
initiatives. Mm. And, and, and they are, and they're important and they're good. I think sometimes we overlook the fact that diversity is also an individual opportunity. And what I mean by that is to the degree that you as an individual have a unique background, a set of experiences, insights, family background, education, whatever it may be, that too counts as diversity. It makes you better at what you do. It makes, it makes your skill set ultimately unique. And it makes you a faster learner. Mm. And in all of my time as an investor and as a manager and running a company and managing portfolios and building teams, making investment decisions, I have only ever in my life encountered one truly sustainable competitive advantage. One. And that is the ability to learn faster than your competition. In an environment of perpetual change, the ability to learn faster than your competition is the only truly sustainable competitive advantage. So at the corporate level, how do you become a learning organization? At the individual level, how do you become that lifelong learner? And I've thought about that a lot over the past couple of years as we've had all of these challenges rest upon our shoulders, Mm -hmm. whether it was raising kids at home in a remote learning environment, managing businesses, managing clients, managing your own healthcare, managing your own sanity, all of those things. I thought about those, tried to find that silver lining and asked myself, what am I learning from this? How am I improving my own diversity of background and experience? And how does that improve my own competitive advantage? By the way, it's not just about the competitive advantage. It's just more fun Mm -hmm. to live that way. Yes, I agree. It makes life so much more robust than we just get in our lane, keep our head down and climb the corporate ladder or the business structure, whatever you're doing. I love that. I love that personal diversity, your own life experience. I love that you mentioned first and foremost, you're a musician, you love old books and literature, and it comes across. I mean, how much information you have stored up, then your brain is able to make those connections in the present and going forward. Yeah. Such a leading edge. I love that. Um, thank you so much for being our guest. This is a, such a gift. And I just cannot wait for future opportunities to hear more from you. And I will definitely go to your website. And what was the link again for this episode? Every, everything that I write is uh, on the Brown Brothers Harriman website. So it's www.bbh, is in brownbrothersharriman.com. And I think you just click on insights and much of what I've written for our clients is all there and it's not behind a paywall. So knock yourself out. I love it. (laughs) I love it. What a gift. What a resource. Thank you so much, Scott. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye everybody. Hey, thanks so much for watching this episode of Unlock You. It is our dream to invest in you. And one of the ways you can do that is by getting more of the bonus material, the content, and to know about future events. Head to the website, drshannoncrawford.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and you'll be the first to know what we're rolling out. And we want you to truly get unlocked so that you can thrive, not only for yourself, but also for the greater calling on your life. Let's link arms and do it together. See you in the next episode.